If you have your Bible this morning, you can begin pulling it out, and we are headed back to the New Testament book of Acts, and you can flip all the way to Acts chapter 10. Uh, This morning, we are going to take on the whole of Acts chapter 10 and the first portion of Acts chapter 11. This uh, story that spans essentially two chapters of Acts is a story that many of us have heard before. It is the story of the Holy Spirit's vision uh, that is given first to Cornelius, a Gentile, and then also Peter, uh, a Jew and an apostle. It is long. It is a total of 78 verses that encompass this entire story. It's actually the longest narrative or story in all of the book of Acts. Um, and it is one that is, uh, the importance of it is communicated in the fact that in these 78 verses, the same story is essentially told and reviewed three full times. And when Peter will get his vision, he'll actually get his vision three full times. And and we should ask the question, why? Why is it that the Lord has done it this way? And I think what we can take away immediately is that this story and, and what it represents is so incredibly important for the church of Jesus to have seen and heard and understood because it is a substantial change. It is the fulfillment here of the new covenant and the results of Christ having come into the world. Jesus has promised it, and now he is making good on his promise, and we need to see it here this morning in the scripture. So I'm going to begin by reading just the first eight verses of chapter 10, and then we will walk our way through in three chunks, three points this morning, through the entirety of these 78 verses. So hear the word of the Lord this morning, Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that's 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we submit yourselves to uh, to your word, even as we submit ourselves to you. We thank you that grace and mercy, power, truth, hope, life, justice, all good things come from you. And so we look to you for hope and guidance this morning, Lord. We pray that the word would apply in a fresh way to our hearts this morning. We ask for your guidance as we study it, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three ways here in this passage that the gospel must and shall go forward. The first of these from verses one through eight, number one, the gospel of Jesus is for moral and immoral people. The gospel of Jesus is for moral and immoral people. 
What we have here at the beginning is a fairly unlikely person to be close to the kingdom or an unlikely person who is interested in the things of God. He is a Roman soldier, a centurion to be specific. Centurions in that era were a fairly low-ranking officer. Um, These guys are non-commissioned officers. They're really the backbone of the Roman legion and commanded often uh, up to about 200 men uh, under them. Like all Romans, though, we can assume that that Cornelius had been taught by his Caesar and by his culture that deity uh, was a wide open concept. It was a fluid concept. You could make of it what you wanted. And he had learned from them to worship a very lengthy pantheon of gods that they worshiped in their culture, including Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune. Perhaps you've heard of them. Um, as well as to view the Caesar himself as a god or certainly god-like. Cornelius was a soldier in the most powerful and the most power-hungry nation and army the world had ever seen to that point. This was the army that invented crucifixion. This was the army that just previous had been responsible for putting Jesus on the cross and executing him. And for generations to come, this was the army and this was the people that would actively humiliate, torture, and murder followers of Jesus. And so it is easy for us to look at him or this sort of people and think, man, they need Jesus. Not so much me, but you know, they're really messed up. But Cornelius sort of gives us both sides of the coin in this passage because he, the centurion, is a little different. This man clearly, we are told, had come to recognize that the the false spiritualism of his culture and of our culture, the idolatry to money, sex, and power in his culture and in our culture was not real, was not substantial, and it could do nothing to help him. Cornelius is a good guy. Cornelius is a moral guy, and from him, we learn that being a good person cannot save you. Cornelius had been exposed at some time previous to this moment in his life. He'd been exposed to Judaism, and he had come to believe in God like the Old Testament Jewish people. Uh, The Bible says that he is devout, meaning that he participated genuinely in worship, He was a God-fearer, the Bible says, which meant he worshiped God, but he had not yet become a Jew by circumcision. And it says that he led his household uh, toward God or even towards relationship with God, which would have included his wife, all his children, perhaps extended family that lived with him, and all of his servants were a part of his household. The Bible says he gave generously to those who were in need of mercy and generosity and that he, quote, prayed continually. There's a lot that we could look at this guy and go, man, he's got it figured out. The things that he is doing, we probably should do too. He's doing a lot of good works. He's doing righteous things, but understand that none of them solved his personal sin problem, nor can any of them solve our own personal sin problem before a holy and righteous God. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says this, all of us have become unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In the New Testament, Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
Now, as we come to our own day, American secular culture looks at the very obvious problems of the world, problems in the world that we see on display uh, right before our eyes this week and this month afresh. And American secular culture says things like this, we must do better. We must do better or be a better person. Or you've heard the language of, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I haven't killed anybody. I pay my taxes usually. Um, or we say things like, we, should, we can and we should fix the world through social issues or social programs. Or we ought to give generously. We ought to feed the homeless. We ought to be a, a spiritual person. But even our most noble endeavors that may genuinely reflect God's goodness, God's mercy, God's justice, are not an end in themselves. We should be reminded again that our very best efforts as humans will not solve society's problems. See Eastern Europe, see the United States of America for details. Every earthly experiment towards human perfection and utopia has failed, and they will continue to fail. All of our good deeds will not be sufficient grounds before the Lord on judgment day. Only the gospel. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the perfect and holy God-man who came to earth and can set us free by his saving grace poured out on the cross is enough. So my question to you immediately is, have you experienced his grace personally. The book of Acts is about the power of God. Have you experienced the power of God personally? See, God knew that Cornelius, like every man, woman, and child on the planet, needed to hear and believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all need the gospel, and the gospel is for moral and immoral people. Number two, the biggest chunk of this passage. Number two, the gospel of Jesus is for the whole world. Understand how radical and profound and life-altering and world-altering that statement is, but this is what Peter is going to be reminded of here in the middle of this passage. Picking up in verse 9, I'm going to read through verse 23 of chapter 10. The next day, As they were on their journey and approaching the city, they're they're going to visit Cornelius now. I'm sorry, Cornelius has sent his men to go find this man, Peter. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, noontime, to pray. Verse 10, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But that while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. 
And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. You can put yourself in Peter's shoes here for a second. It is understandable when the Bible here says that Peter was initially perplexed by the Holy Spirit's vision. What do you mean, Lord, is his sort of immediate response. And we have this this heavenly sheet. It is filled with all kinds of animals that are very much on the do not eat list in the Old Testament, which God had lovingly given his people in the book of Leviticus chapter 11. So we can imagine on this sheep, along with a lamb and a dove, were probably things like a seagull, an iguana. And I'm confident there was a huge potbelly pig sitting on this sheet. And so Peter looks at that and goes, no. The four corners of the sheet no doubt represent the four corners of the world, the four corners of the globe. And what we are going to see is that the expansion of these dietary laws stood as a small symbol for a much greater reality, and that was the full expansion of the gospel. The old covenant between God and Adam had been subsumed by the new covenant of Jesus Christ already, but believers were still coming to understand its full impact. The vision is to show us, yet again, that not just circumcised Jews, but even the Gentiles, of which the vast majority of us here fit in that category, but all people are invited into the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit gives this vision to Peter three times in a row. And Peter's response is, by no means, Lord. I don't think he's angry necessarily at God. He doesn't get it, but he is absolutely resistant to what the immediate dietary and perhaps what the ultimate information here is that the Lord has for him. Uh, R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Acts says of this moment about Peter, Peter was about to see in living color his own cold attitude toward the world, or at least toward non-Jews. Teeming millions were stone blind spiritually, and yet Peter's callous reply was, surely not, Lord. But once he really understood what it all meant, Peter would never forget this strange vision. In fact, he spoke of it over and over again. What if Peter's attitude and action here in this moment and the believers in the very small church on planet earth at the time, what if their attitude and their limitations on the gospel had never changed? Huge areas of the world even today, entire people groups, races of people, wicked empires, various political factions, the very wealthy or the very poor would perhaps have been written off by the church as beyond God's grace. What if we only share the gospel with people who look and think the way that we do. From Peter, we see a repentance. We see a turning. We see a shifting. And from Peter in particular, we see what immediate obedience looks like. Peter immediately, as the Holy Spirit speaks to him, 
follows up with what God has instructed him to do. Uh, One of my favorite parenting quotes of all time comes from my sister-in-law, Gina Bolin. You'll want to tuck this one away for later on. Slow obedience is no obedience. Hang on to that one. Slow obedience is no obedience. And what Peter is going to show us is the exact opposite. He's going to show us immediate obedience, repentance. The Bible says that he immediately takes a huge leap of faith, obeys God's command, and shows hospitality to, again, a highly unlikely people, these Gentile men who have just shown up. It is worth thinking about in our own lives if we sort of put the the sheet, the napkin in front of our own hearts. If you had a paper napkin in front of you and you had a pen with you, what names or what groups of people or what types of people would you write down that in your own heart you have that same tendency to write off as unlikely or beyond God's grace or what they have done is is too much or, or too bad or they're too different from me? too far gone, too wicked to receive God's life-changing and and world-changing grace. Maybe it's a a family member who has frustrated you for years. Maybe it is a a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker that just drives you crazy from time to time. Maybe it is someone who has hurt you in the past. Maybe it's people in high and lofty positions that you've never actually met and you never will meet, but you sort of write them off. Maybe it's a particular nation this morning or even a particular race of people that you say, I don't know about them. Who do we in our own hearts, intentionally or unintentionally, view as too dangerous or too dirty? But Jesus, in fact, says, I came for them. I came to love them too. See, the gospel is powerful enough to save anyone, just like it's powerful enough to save you. The gospel is powerful enough to change anyone, just like the gospel is powerful enough to change anyone. And if we skip ahead to to chapter 11, chapter 11 is Peter's summary of what just happened in chapter 10. And what we see in chapter 11, if we can skip ahead there for just a second, is we're going to see some extremely immature believers who at first will criticize Peter's evangelism to a group of Gentiles that is, is forthcoming. If you have your Bible, flip, flip ahead to Acts chapter 11. It'll be on the screen as well, but look at verses one through four, and then he's gonna give a summary of what happened, and then we're gonna look at verses 17 and 18. Look at what happens with these believers, where they start and where they finish. 11 verse one. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them, it to them in order. And then he recounts the entire story to them, which we'll continue to see. Look at verse 17 and 18, though. If then God gave the same gift to them, says Peter, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically the Holy Spirit, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. Sometimes that is the best response. Close my mouth, listen to the Lord. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Believers were changed. Believers were matured. Believers repented. 
Kent Hughes writes a, of, a, of a story about Mahatma Gandhi. It says Mahatma Gandhi shares in his autobiography that in his student days back in England, he was deeply touched by reading the Gospels and seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity, which seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. One Sunday, he attended church services and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left and never came back. Quote, if Christians have caste differences also, he said to himself, I might as well remain a Hindu. The gospel of Jesus is available to the whole world. Amen? This is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of true believers, though. He changes them. He moves them to repentance and to new life in Christ. The Bible says the old has gone and the new has come. And so the question that we ought to ask, even as God moved the hearts of Peter and the hearts of these initial believers who were resistant at first, but then came to understand the gospel and live it out, is the gospel changing you, believer, the way that it was changing them? See, the gospel is not a one-time moment. You accept God, you get your fire insurance, and you go along your way. No, no, no. God's love, his goodness, his power continually grows and changes within us. It is sanctification is the word that the Bible uses, where we are continually being conformed more and more into the image the actions of Jesus, not that we'll be perfect in this life, but that God loves us so much that his grace continues to fill us and we continue to follow in his footsteps. And to be clear here, the problem was not that God would not save Gentiles. The problem was that the church needed to get on board with the vastness of God's goodness and grace and mission here on earth. Even in the Old Testament, we see Gentiles coming to faith we see that God's plan A has not changed. God told Abraham in his covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12, quote, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Meaning I'm going to send one whose name we now know is Jesus and through him salvation will be available to all people. We see Gentile believers in the Old Testament, women like Rahab and Ruth who come to saving faith in God. And we can expect to see them in heaven one day. And here in the New Testament, we have the words of Jesus many places, but even at the very beginning of Acts, our foundational verse that really sets the tone for all of the book, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus told them up front what the mission was, but he has to continue to come back to his people and teach them how to live out that reality. The gospel is for the whole world. Third and finally, the gospel of Jesus demands a response of faith. The gospel of Jesus demands a response of faith. Look at with me now. We're going to look at verses 24 through 29. And then we get a third summary of what has just happened, and we'll pick up in verse 34 and read to 43. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Worship Peter. 
But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Now Cornelius then shares with Peter his vision and explains, this is why I'm asking you to come. I want to hear more about God. Verse 34, picking up. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter does not allow Cornelius to celebrity worship him, says, I'm I'm a man just like you. And then he expresses the power of the gospel to all of these listening. And this is the first time in history where a full group of Gentiles are being preached to about the good news of the gospel. He tells him the key information. And when we think about what is the gospel, Peter does a beautiful job of reminding us what is the gospel First, Jesus' life, that Jesus lived the perfect life, always doing good, always healing, always with the right motives, but unlike every other person in history, he had no sin. Jesus declares to us and to them that he himself is the way of, quote, peace with God. What does he mean by that? See, outside of Christ, every single person for all time Our sin and our rebellion makes us at war with God. The word war is close to our minds and hearts, so consider that outside of Christ, every single human being is at war with God because of our rebellion, because of our sin, because of our wickedness. It's not out there, it's in here too. And so the message of the gospel is Jesus' perfect life and then Jesus' death that our sin and rebellion is so great that we hung the sinless Savior of the world on a cross to die. And when he was there, he paid the price for our sins. The Bible says, thirdly, Jesus' resurrection, that God raised Jesus from death 
back to life. And in so doing, he defeated and conquered sin and death on our behalf. And then it says that Jesus will return to judge the whole world, both the living and the dead. A question we should all consider is this. If you were to stand before God tonight and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your response be? It should not be, well, I'm a pretty good person. I give generously. I pray often. The answer should be this, that on a bloody Roman cross, Jesus, the Son of God, died to pay the penalty for my sins and then rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death. And I have accepted and I believe in that free gift that has been offered to me. Only by the blood of the spotless lamb of God can I enter into your presence. That's the answer. Not, I'm a moral person. Jesus offered up his perfect life in exchange for my wretchedness. And I receive that gift by believing in him. And through him, I can experience forgiveness and new life in Christ as my Savior. Look at the last four verses here of Acts chapter 10, finishing out this story. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Here we have this moment where the Holy Spirit comes upon them and, and tongues here continue to be a reflection of the message of Acts that the gospel is not just for Jerusalem, not just for Samaria, but for the entire world. Cornelius and all of those who were with him trusted in Jesus by faith and were saved in that moment. They heard the gospel and they said, yes, I believe that. And like all believers, they received the Holy Spirit at their conversion. And here we have one of the three unique and world-changing moments in the history of redemption. The believers at Pentecost, the Jewish believers at Pentecost, are saved and received the Holy Spirit. The, the believers, the Samaritan believers in Acts chapter 8 and verse 17, and now the Gentile believers here in Acts chapter 10. 78 verses a story told three times. Peter gets his vision three times to make sure that the church of Jesus Christ understands that for the rest of time, the gospel is not just for us Jews, it is for the world. The gospel demands a response. Nothing about your heritage or what family you came from or how many times you attended church or whether or not you went to Sunday school as a child, none of that makes you a believer. The gospel demands a response. Cornelius and those with him heard the gospel and they responded in faith and repentance. And the question for all of us is, what about you? They didn't need an invitation or flashing lights or a fog machine or another chorus of just as I am. They just needed to hear and believe the gospel message. 
And each of us must personally respond in repentance and faith to King Jesus. It sounds a little bit like this, Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you are real and that you're the savior of the world. And I confess that I'm a sinner, not just that I sin, but that my sins are personally against you. Forgive me of my sin. I'm sorry for what I have done. And would you change my heart and my life? I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to you, Jesus. I want you to be the new Lord of my life, not me anymore. When I'm in charge of my life, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. I want you to be Lord. The gospel demands a response of faith. And Jesus Christ himself invites you to receive that same good news that Cornelius was offered that day. That same good news is offered to you this morning and to the world. Amen. Let's take a minute. Let's pray to our good and loving Father right now.